0: Welcome to the Crime Narrative Podcast, where we discuss and dissect crime and mystery films. We classify the films into subgenres, and over a number of months, discuss one or two films in each podcast episode. We start with the earliest films in each subgenre and, more or less chronologically, work our way forward to the present day. Is it going to be exhaustive in terms of all the films we look at in each subgenre? Probably not. Perhaps 15 to 20 films per series based on which films interest us. My name is Ken and I'm your host. The first series we're going to explore is Serial Killers. Most of us are familiar with the concept of serial killers. The term was probably first used in the early 1970s by FBI Special Agent Robert Ressler. The definition of a serial killer is someone who murders three or more people over a period of time, with days, weeks, months, and sometimes even years in between individual kills. The period of time in which the killer is active is probably going to be at least a month, though of course sometimes the murder and mayhem last much longer than that. The way society views serial killers has changed over the years, and that is reflected in the way serial killers are depicted in cinema. The first film we're going to discuss in the serial killer series is 1955's The Night of the Hunter, starring Robert Mitchum and directed by Charles Lawton. So I'd like to welcome my first guest to the podcast, a friend and colleague, Craig Perkins. Craig, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Ken. Good to see you.
0: So do you want to tell us something about yourself?
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, My name is Craig Perkins from England. I'm a teacher, fellow teacher with Ken at a university here. And he asked me to do a podcast, which I was delighted about because I am a big movie fan. I love movies. Almost everything about them.
0: So Craig, what's your history with crime films? Have you always been a fan? Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I think crime is probably the best genre of movies. Purely because it's, it fits the good versus evil uh, narrative the best. Because Evil, in of itself, necessitates most of the time crime. So yeah, um, the stories of good and evil fit best when there's a crime because a crime, there's a criminal, there's a villain.
0: And uh, do you have uh, do you have like a, a favorite sub genre?
1: Uh, well, yeah, I think my actual favorite sub drama is probably heist
0: heist movie. Yeah, I'm um, absolutely. Going to be covering that later in the.
1: I'm a big podcast. sucker for heist movies. I love lots of working parts coming together, and being in the dark and not knowing.
0: Great. So our our first series is serial killers, and why do you think people are so fascinated by serial killers? Um, I think it's
1: because uh, this. Aside from other crime genres, the audience can probably have empathy with the villains at times. Whereas with serial killers, they are so alien because it's uh, the worst crime, murder. However, that's usually portrayed uh, via greed or passion and people can understand that. Whereas with serial killers, or probably say a majority of them, uh the reasons are beyond understanding and therefore um curiosity um, takes over, people become fascinated with the why. And um obviously that piques their interest. And also, unfortunately, offers um they can be glamorized because they're so different. And again, uh, that piques the interest of the audience.
0: And do you have a favorite serial killer movie?
1: Uh, I do. Um, Silence of the Lambs is probably my favorite. Um, I, uh, uh, Harris, the author, of the books, I'm uh, a big fan of his. I've read, I've read the books, and um, uh, yeah, Hannibal Lecter is just the most interesting serial killer,
0: I would say. Great. So let's dive into a discussion about the first film in this series, 1955's "The Night of the Hunter," directed by Charles Lawton and starring Robert Mitchum. And before we do, just a quick note, this podcast will be full of spoilers, so keep that in mind if you haven't yet seen the film. And Craig, can you give us a synopsis of Night of the Hunter?
1: Yeah, sure sure thing. I don't think we need to uh, worry about spoilers from a a 1955 (laughs) film. (laughs) But anyhow, my uh, short synopsis. Uh, The film opens on a feature... And we are left in no uncertain terms that he is a diabolical shit. He then gets arrested. And we see him in jail where he learns from his cellmates that he robbed the bank. Sorry, the cellmate robbed the bank and has left $10,000 in the care of his children. That man is then hanged. And Petra is released from jail and sets out to get the cash this he does by his usual mo which is the murder and sed- seduction and murder of the man's wife upon arrival john the son is wary of him however the mother and sister fall for his charm. he then becomes to show his true colors he murders the wife and the children escape creature then turns into the terminator and we have a 20 minute chase scene. At the end of which the children are taken in by Mrs Cooper who runs a makeshift orphanage. After initial reservations John begins to warn to Mrs Cooper and his new life. Finally Preacher finds them and we have a showdown between the opposing representations of Christianity and at the end
0: good wins out against evil. So this was your first time watching this film, wasn't it? What's your overall opinion of the film? Did you like it? I watched it twice because at the time I
1: did not get it. I did not understand it particularly. Obviously the plots I understood, but the overall movie left me somewhat
0: confused uh, in many places. Uh, So what... In terms of just what the director was trying to do or or what the, the just,
1: themes um, were? Um, or? Really what was happening and why it was happening. Uh, a lot of the symbolism was lost on there, I think, the first time. Uh, the pacing of the movie took me um, by surprise. I mean, after the last five years of Netflix and watching Trash on there, where it's go, 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 I mean, a 10 minute riverboat scene, um, can appear at first boring if you're not clicked into it.
0: You're referring to when they're on the picnic or the, or the chase?
1: Uh, um, uh, the chase
0: scene. Okay. When they're on the, on the skiff, they call it.
1: So, I think I needed to watch it a second time just to distinguish what was 50 filmmaking and what was unique to this film. But on second viewing, it started to click into place and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it the first time. I just left it a little confused. The second time I enjoyed it and I was more satisfied. And I think in the future, I will watch this movie again. Uh, and I think it will become less boring and more satisfying with each verbal watch. Great.
0: So let's do a deeper dive into this film. Start at the beginning and kind of walk our way through the film. Yeah. Kind of stop at scenes you might want to comment on or whatever you want to say, really. So, so How
1: many times have you seen the film?
0: I probably saw this for the first time probably about 20 years ago, maybe. Yeah. And then in preparation for this podcast, I, I watched it Once and then went through it again. Maybe not every minute the second time, but so I probably and probably in between that maybe a one other time. So probably four times I'd I'd say I've seen it.
1: Yeah. Good. Okay. That's good. Uh, You take the lead because there's doubtless things that I'm going to have forgotten. Sure.
0: So this film opens with an image of an older woman an image of her face and she's speaking against a black background and there's an image of five children under her and she's relating passages from the Bible. Uh, the The audience doesn't know who that is at the moment, but of course that's the character Rachel Cooper who we don't see until the final third of the film.
1: You know what? The first time I watched it, I didn't put two and two together by the time you met her later on in the film, uh, pretty much. Oh no, yeah. I could absolutely movie. see a,
0: a, an audience member not clicking and saying, Oh yeah. I remember her from the beginning, but yeah, that's yeah. She was at the beginning and yeah. And then you, from there you, you kind of get a, an aerial shot of some children playing and they find oh, the corpse of a woman in a house. Yeah.
1: So just to go back in, uh, I wrote in my notes, uh, very beginning. Um, I just wrote down open those woman explaining basic crafts of movie to children in space.
0: Yeah, I know. It kind of had a like a dark background. There, you it know, was just kinda... like
1: floating heads with a starry background.
0: Yeah, I know. It was kind of. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, in, in retrospect, it's obviously the beginning of a fairy tale.
0: Yeah. Exactly. But exactly. actually Be- yeah.
1: the first time watching that, you just um, you don't. I didn't get that. It just looked surreal to me.
0: I didn't either. And even rewatching it the second time for the podcast, I mean, not the second time I watched it overall, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That whole kind of fairy tale feeling to the film that is there throughout, it starts right at the beginning.
1: Because I came into the movie, um I was... From what I initially understood, it was it's a serial killer killer movie. So a a movie about a murderous creature. So opening up with, I had this woman given a parable from the Bible. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, she said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Beware of false prophets. And then because the yeah,
1: basic premise of the movie yeah.
0: yeah, I mean they just put it right out there and so then you get the aerial shot of the kids they find the corpse and then you're were introduced to Harry Powell when he's got that monologue going. he's in what they call a touring car yeah so what do you make of that whole kind of opening setup and then he's in the burlesque show. <laughs> I mean, like you said, it's pretty on the nose, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, um, after the kids find the body of the woman, we see Harry in the, uh, we see featuring creature in the car. And he just, uh, from a movie, uh, writing perspective, this is just exposition. This is giving his character. Exactly. And um, so he's saying, what, six, twelve? talking to the Lord, which I want to come back to when we, um, later on, when we discuss character, I've got a, a few thoughts on the Feature.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, yeah we'll come I, back to that. Sure. Yeah.
1: So we're given, um, background on him. So he's, he's a serial murderer, uh, another widow, um, a con artist. And then, uh, into the burlesque show, uh which yeah, I said very on the nose. It's all about his misogyny. Um like he his hand has hate when across the knuckles and it balls up into a fist and then reaches into a pocket where a knife comes shoots out.
0: Um very phallic
1: yeah I mean yeah, exactly it's not uh the symbolism
0: it's not subtle. He isn't,
1: isn't treated with soft gloves at all. No. Uh, yeah. And then out of nowhere, he gets
0: arrested. Right. He gets pulled, yanked out of the burlesque show, actually, doesn't he?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I, I quite like the way um, the character is presented as creepy because he's he's the way he's talking is quite polite. You can see the rage and violence within him. So then he's arrested, and uh, the film moves into him overhearing. Um, sorry, I forgot the name. John's father. Ben Harper. Ben Harper. Yeah, Ben Harper. Sleep talking about the money. So he finds out there's ten thousand dollars somewhere with his son. I was going to say this is probably uh, the only um, the only funny. Well, the only scene I found particularly funny. It's where Mitchum drops his head down from the right. top funnel, and it's like one of those fairground games where you shoot and the things come down, and he gives them a swift left hook to the chops. And apparently that was um, Mitchum, Mitchum's idea
0: to do that. So this is a, a kind of a huge crime film trope, isn't it? The heist, the money is. One character, or we later learn, there's a couple of characters knows where know where it's hidden, and then other people are trying to find out about this money. Maybe it wasn't so such a so worn of a. Kind yeah, of I, I like effort. how the
1: movie. Yeah, I like how the movie didn't tell the audience where the money, where the money is. It's, there is money, so the audience can be thinking a lot right. with uh, with feature they can be thinking, where is he going to look?
0: A little tidbit, I, maybe I was going to share it later, but apparently in the Swedish version of the film, they gave it away in the title. They called it Ragdoll.
1: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So, yeah, so after Ben Harper is executed, then Powell, Harry Powell gets out of prison and makes a direct line to where... Willa Harper, Ben Harper's widow and the two children live. I believe the name of the place is Cressup's Landing and he sets about starting to sink his claws into into Willa obviously with the goal of trying to find out where this money is hidden.
1: Yeah, well I think uh, the money is certainly the um the primary objective but this is from the beginning, from the exposition this is we know this is what he
0: does. He he goes around. You're absolutely right. He goes around seeking uh, out new victims, yeah. right? Seducing single women, widowers, especially, murdering them
1: for their money. Right. Which is what I want to come on to later on. Um, is he a con man or is he a psychopath?
0: That's, yeah, that's an interesting. Is he a, is he a true believer or does he know full well what he's doing? I yeah. think we can get into that later for sure.
1: Once he's there, John has uh, the son has. He's initially wary. He doesn't trust trust him much at all. Whereas the sister, uh, she's full. She's fully there.
0: Everybody besides John pretty much is taken in by by Powell, aren't they? I mean, you have the the woman who works at the who owns the ice cream shop. Oh, she's I see. Yeah, icy spoon. What a name, right? And <laughs> yeah. she's all. Most of the women in the community, we don't really get a look at any extra characters beyond the just a small group. But you kind of get the sense that they're all kind of duped and charmed by yeah by Powell, and the men think he's pretty okay. There are a few well, little hints look, where some people, like Birdie, the old man, he maybe has a yeah, few he's, reservations. He's, he's wary about him. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, I see his husband.
0: Yeah, he even he. Go along, yeah.
1: He goes along with it. Yeah. But um, I, I see, yeah, Walsby. I see that, um, I see them as like a representation of um, thoughtless, thoughtless people who blindly follow.
0: Absolutely. So, like, um,
1: gullible, following the crowd, uh, easy to believe something. Yeah. So, just uh, followers. And they they all have Christianity. So, a preacher turns up, calls himself a man of God, and they fall for it quite innocently.
0: And in the background, everybody's also thinking about the money. You have the old woman at the pawn shop, and. And Walt and Icy, they are thinking about it. And even Willa, I mean, she's wondering about where this money is.
1: I mean, from t- t- a realistic point of view, like if-, if someone turns up like a short time after your husband's been hung for murder, after robbing $10,000 that no one knows where it is, I would have, I would imagine more suspicions would have been raised, but everyone seems to be like, oh no, 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 he's just, his excuse is that he, he's come to comfort the widow because he tells them he was um, a prison warden. Is that correct?
0: Right. He claims he was there to counsel and help the prisoners.
1: Yeah. And then he left and turned uh into, into the man of God he is.
0: And, of course, because this film is set in the early 30s. I don't know if they say the exact year, but I'm guessing maybe 31, 32
1: I got the impression it's from, I'm not sure, again, I don't know if you said, but the, the depression era.
0: Is set right, towards, yeah. yeah. Right, late 20s, early 30s, around there.
1: Because, because of what he um, was saying about not wanting his children to be like.
0: Oh, yeah, it's absolutely in depression era. there's all yeah, the fellow that. children that he's seen. So the money kind of takes on even a, a, a greater significance. I mean, everybody's hmm. bearing up under the weight of the depression. So, yeah, you have a, we have a bit of a back and forth between John and the preacher and Icy Spoon is kind of, she's kind of barely concealing her own kind of, you'd almost say lustful feelings herself for the preacher. And she kind of pushes Willa towards getting married. So there's a whole, there's a few, you know, there's the whole sequence where they go on the picnic and... And because, finally, right. And finally, the decision comes. They're going to get married.
1: Yeah, well, I saw, I saw, I see as living vicariously through Willa.
0: Absolutely. So she's totally um, agree.
1: she's pushing Willa to do because Willa is not um, really let up for it at the beginning. Obviously, her husband just died, and her. Um, her husband, although, in fact, what well, he stole, is sort of portrayed as um, a fairly good, good man. Like, when the hangman comes out after hanging him, near the beginning of the film, uh, they're almost praising, um, praising him, saying, oh, he was no problem, he died uh, like a man. Died
0: with dignity.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I got so, that sense. Um, as well. She's obviously going to be,
0: uh,
1: and it they, they looked like they had quite a sexually healthy relationship
0: with her and her husband. Absolutely. Later on, I'll maybe get into talking about the the novel this film is based on, which I've read, and all of these things. Obviously, because of the form, they go into more in the novel, and that is absolutely yeah. true. And so, then what,
1: what did you think about? Um, Harry's uh, parable about good and evil.
0: Richard. Oh right, yeah, we haven't even talked about that. So Harry—that exactly. po- was
1: one of his uh, initial seduction techniques, wasn't it? Get
0: right, ed- Harry Sorry. Powell has on his the fingers of each hand on the fingers of. Uh, oh, I forget if it's a left or right. One hand has hate with H A T E, one letter on each finger, and the other hand has love. L-O-V-E, one letter on each finger, and he intertwines his hands and tells a story about good and evil, the battle of good and evil, which is...
1: Yeah, he talks about left-hand hate being Cain, killing his brother. Oh, right, yeah, absolutely. Right-hand love, uh, fighting to overcome that, and and put hate, hate.
0: Right, which is a big theme in this film, and then he's telling it in his own kind of inauthentic con artist way and so he tells that story a number of times and so then
1: he he tells it once and we'll we'll come to it later when he tries to tell it again and he's cut off quite quickly so yeah so they get married Uh, moving along quite quickly oh before that actually the picnic scene where he's impressing everyone with his singing voice um because this is supposed to be a scary film uh, and one of the the first dark scenes is where he goes over to john and tightens his tie innocently but quite menacingly i like that scene because there's nothing behind it like really but like the way he tightens it just you can see the power dynamic there and what he's Capable of
0: the menace, or could
1: be capable of. Yeah, starts there.
0: And speaking of menace. moving along quickly, so once they actually get married, then is kind of almost you know a series of of cuts between different scenes, and we see Willa is quickly comes under his spell. She's even at one of these kind of revival tents meetings out in the countryside?
1: Yeah, I think because that comes... um, I wouldn't say under his spell exactly. I mean, I think he manipulates her to the point where she feels bad about herself. Like I said, she it appeared her and her previous husband had quite a healthy relationship. However, on their wedding night... She is absolutely dressed down.
0: Absolutely humiliated.
1: Yeah, brutally, horribly. And obviously she's probably going to be in quite a fragile state after her husband is died, And, and, and she's just broken, broken down from that. And, um, that's why we see her weak for the rest of the movie. So like when she's preaching in the countryside, that's, that's not her, that's her him through her, but yeah the the dress down scene in the bedroom that you can't really help but have quite a lot of sympathy for her, just the way her expectation is so quickly and so brutally flipped, not violently but
0: like verbally, and so let's keep going then, after they're married, he's still of course focused on finding that money and we have a number of other scenes between between him and John and finally I mean maybe rushing along here but finally we get to that scene in the bed, I mean there's other scenes if you want to talk about you have the um
1: I'll, I'll come back to him if they spring to mind yeah,
0: sure, yeah we come to the scene, the, that that scene in the bedroom where his his kind of rage boils over and he murders Willa. It's basically off screen but he cuts her throat.
1: Yeah, I like that. Um Yeah, the first time, this is one of the things that confused me the first time I watched it. The way Willa allows herself to be murdered so passively. So w- when you watch it the second time, it's what I see it as because she's I mean, she is allowing him to do it.
0: Well, yeah, I mean you could you could say there's many similarities between cult figures and what they do to their followers. I mean there's there's something of that there and almost all cult leaders use sex to manipulate and and warp their followers. And she, you're right, she just, she just lies there and welcomes it and she's... I think she does welcome it. I think it's
1: because she's accepting of it. Maybe she's accepting what she has been, what has been forced down her throat as being evil, her sexual urges. And, uh, she thinks the only way to overcome them, ultimately, would be death. So she allows, allows him to do it. I
0: agree. The,
1: the way it's shot, the room.
0: The is. lighting, the way she has this angelic kind of glow around her as she's lying back in the bed and the, the light the and shadows. Building,
1: it's an A-framed building. It's right. A church. If you look at the A-framed building with the light coming through. Uh, it's very, um, like like a cathedral almost
0: like a sacrifice.
1: And also, the way he, he leans over her is very very Dracula, isn't it? Uh, there's another one, a Frankenstein one, I'll come to you later. But there, he's very Dracula, the way he sweeps over with the knife. And then we see, then we see him dead. Uh, so, well, then we know that she's dead. Just to go back to a previous scene to so that, there's a lot of to and fro between Harry and John and uh, Pearl in the middle. What do you make of Pearl in all this? I mean, she's- Pearl, well, she's not-
0: She's younger than John, obviously. She's even- But even if she were the same age, I think- I think it's done intentionally to show she's quite easily led. I mean, obviously she's a little kid, I mean-
1: But like, uh, the scene preceding uh, the murder was when Willa comes home, overhears, Harry interrogating Pearl. Brow beating he or shining. Comes in to see her, him being physically abusive, uh, towards her. So from that point on, like, I feel that, cause Pearl keeps going back to him. Like, even whenever at Mrs. Cooper's house, Pearl goes and gives, hugs his leg when right. he stands up. Whereas, Where um, whereas John is actually pushing against him, throws a comb at his head at one point.
0: All kind of pretense is is gone at that point. They're full. Oh yeah, on.
1: afterwards. Yeah, but we did it at the dinner table.
0: Yeah, that was a kind of a cruel scene, wasn't it? He's got this big spread of food. I think was it brought and prepared by icy spoon, yeah, maybe. And he's sitting there plugging his his cake hole, and these little kids. There is stepchildren. They're there and he won't give them anything to eat. And he's he just this, what a nasty character he is. Yeah, isn't he, he doesn't see them as a sketch. He doesn't care a whit about these kids. They, he wants the money. I think he is a full-on sociopath.
1: Oh, yeah. Undoubtedly, yeah. So that, so that's all through manipulation. It's, not, and it's, it's becoming obvious it's not going to work.
0: The subtler tactics aren't working, and he's getting enraged, and it's slowly building up. And then he murders. Tries to get out
1: of it, by telling a fib, he's led down to the basement. Because at, at, till that point, do we know? Yes, yeah, we do know. At that point, we do know the money. We do know where
0: God. the money is because, because we
1: see we see her cutting.
0: There's symbolism there, pretty obviously, cutting. Paper dolls out of the money, mm-hmm. and I'm going to talk about this a bit later, and maybe you will too about the money is stuffed into the into the little doll, and I, that scene I think is before he does murder Willa,
1: yeah, with yes, the paper money, is, yeah.
0: So it all comes to a to a horrible end there, and we're at that point we're about two thirds of the way through the movie when. Will is killed, and I guess he just drives or pushes the car into the river with with her in the in the passenger seat. That's quite an arresting scene, there, isn't it? When that
1: is most haunting and beautiful, and by far the best thing about see the, the best scene in this movie.
0: I know later in the film we're going to do another segment about the influence of this film, but. That kind of scene, I wonder if before that, anything like that had ever been done, because since then, there have been a lot of scenes yeah. of an, a, a dead person underwater, usually a woman with long hair. Very ethereal. Absolutely, and you see, you see the slice if you look closely. Yeah. It's right, it's almost from ear to down to the center of her throat. I I because
1: I, she- I looked at that and I first at it, how did they do that in nineteen fifty five? Uh that's a wax stock.
0: Was it wax? Yeah, it was
1: made of wax. It's really good. It is good. And they and it's in a big tanker. And what they've done is um filtered a hose to, to push the water through. But yes, yeah, such a good shot.
0: And then we have Kind of the broken down. They call him Uncle Birdie. I don't think he's really their uncle, though. He lives by in a shack down by the river, and he sees her. He sees her at the bottom of the river, and then basically you have that cellar scene, the scene in the cellar where they tell a lie about where the money is. And anything you see in that scene or anything going on there you wanted to? Uh, well,
1: um, it's, at this point, it's overt that he's going to murder the children. Uh, and this is why well, Pearl, a little snitch, raps out John straight away. He did a sin. He might as well say, Oi, preacher, could you murder my brother, please? This is also the first time we see a more buffoonish side to feature. Um, so, the way he's tricked, and the way he's pushed into the wall, and the jar comes and smacks him his head. The way he's chasing uh, the children upstairs. I'm not. Sure, that's what I was talking about. Like Frankenstein. Frankenstein. He's got his arms out, and then he gets the hand caught in the door, and lets out a moan, and sort of sits with his back to the door. And this is completely opposite to the start of that, where he, another really, quite scary part, where he's saying, children. And then he walks to the top and he's framed in the, the door at the top of the stairs in the cellar. Legitimately scary. To end that in a more buffoonish way, I thought was... uh a strange choice because he 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 loses a bit of fear, and not not he regains it quickly as he's ch- uh, chasing them down uh, to the river. But I thought it was a bit strange, almost slapstick element being added in there.
0: Oh yeah, I I think I mean I was going to talk about this a bit later, but there's a buffoonish quality mm-hmm. to him throughout. At times, which I, I
1: think this is the first, this is the first time we see it, right? if memory serves correct. Right. Because up until this point, obviously we've seen him lose his temper with children, but this is when he, we see that he is capable of killing completely. We see him unravel for the first time when he gives a real demonic scream, screech, when the skiff gets out of his grasp.
0: And, and sails away. So that's they. They get out of the cellar. He's trapped in there for a while, and I guess he does. He axe his way out.
1: I thought, am
0: I, I, I misremembering I, that? I
1: can't remember exactly how he got his way out, but he, he, yeah. Then he goes.
0: He chases them down to the river. Get, they get the skiff, kind of unmoored, and yeah, they not get cool in there.
1: And, cool and calm anymore. The last scene before which. Uh, the riverboat scene, or one of them, is with Icy and Walt, where they get the card from him, I believe. And we see um the original side to creature where he's fooled them yet again. Also attacked a gypsy, stolen a horse. Oh no, um attacked a farmer, stolen a horse. Right, that, that's
0: after that's after the they've all disappeared, right?
1: Yeah, and managed to cry looking like roses. But so get, his, what, get what he wants.
0: So the river sequence, that's probably one part of the film that a lot of people really remember. It's very kind of arresting visually, and it's very haunting. And you have all these images of real animals they use, the owl, mm. the rabbits, You see one scene right near the beginning of that sequence where they float. It's almost kind of like an aerial shot, show them floating, and they're in a like a spider's web. What is your take on that whole river sequence?
1: Well, the the first time, again, I was confused by. I didn't really. It went on for quite a while. It must be like ten or fifteen minutes that scene. Broken in by the, when they go into the barn, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But from leaving their house to, to coming ashore to Mrs. Cooper's, I think it's about 10 or 15 minutes. It's quite long.
0: Yeah, I was actually watching that part right before we started recording and I was, I was interested in that. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's probably about 10 minutes. Right. It was, and you quite, have some it was really quite long. But Does it work for you for the most part? That sequence.
1: First time, no. Second time, yes. And because, but second time, when you when you've watched it the first time and you've, you've thought about it, and then you start to see it in terms of a fairy tale, then the whimsy of the riverboat scene hits home more. Uh, and you can't do that in a couple of uh, jump cuts. You. Know, the music. We need the animal sounds and the animals in there to make sense of it. Again, I still feel it might be a little wrong, but maybe that's just my so my my, my my limited attention span.
0: So we're basically at the two thirds mark here when they go they're found by Rachel Cooper. The skiff is grounded on the banks of the mm. Ohio River, it is. So she finds them and as you said in the synopsis, she kind of has a kind of a makeshift orphanage where she takes in yeah. children who've because of the depression there's a lot of children without families. And so we we start towards the final third of the film. I, I like
1: how this is done in the movie because the whole riverboat scene was a chase and we didn't mention when they stopped at the, the barn house, and we saw Peter.
0: Yeah, that's that's singing, a really singing, leaning,
1: leaning. Yes, leaning, which is the first time he sang the song.
0: It was uh,
1: scary. Well, not scary. It was a bit creepy. But the more like the repetition of it over and over and over and over becomes more effective. But throughout that whole scene we're moving from from left to right. The skiff is going along the river, left. And in the barn, the silhouette with the horse is going left to right. And then, again, back on the skiff, it's going it's going left to right, which is the chase. But when they wash up on the bank, um, Miss Cooper takes them out and leaves and them across, screen, right to left. Okay. So it's a very visual message that the chase is now over. Oh, right. Um, see what you mean. Sort of a symbolism that Miss Cooper, by going right to left over the screen, is the exact opposite of the creature who's been driving them left to right for the last 10 minutes or so. Yeah, I see what you mean. I thought that was quite clever. Mm-hmm. If it, I'm sure it was intentional because it certainly looks like it.
0: So then we're introduced to this collection of children who lives with Rachel Cooper and you have kind of a bit of a montage scene where the, or cuts between various, where John and Pearl become part of this little found family. And I think they, she makes jam or some other things and maybe sells the jam in town and some vegetables and, So everything's kind of going along pretty nicely, but obviously as viewers, we know, obviously it's not over. And then we're introduced to another character, one of the children who's a bit older than the other children, Ruby. So, and we'll talk about this more later or if you want to now. I mean, so, I mean, sex is a big theme in this film. It's almost always... Dysfunctional, destructive, repressed. So she—that's that's that's the creature. He's the biggest. I mean, that was that was
1: yeah. That was highlighted in the first two minutes. Uh, Yeah,
0: absolutely. And she kind of lets herself be used by men down on the by the river, and so eventually, as we know, is going to happen, the inevitable happens. The preacher comes to town. So what's your take on all that build-up and the Uh, character of Ruby? And
1: uh, It confused me because I think, if I remember rightly, the the preacher approaches Ruby by saying, you must be Ruby. So I don't understand how he knew her. Or how he had any inkling that she
0: would be
1: connected to the children.
0: I'd have to go back and watch that, but I mean, my guess would be he just asked. I thought that
1: was more clumsy. I thought it was clumsily done.
0: Could have been a bit of a continuity issue. Um, or maybe we're just supposed to assume he sniffed around town and. Talk to some of the local lads. Who knows? I don't know. I, I missed that. I have to, I have to say. I but didn't how, see that. How
1: did he, how did he have her in his mind? How did he have her connected with the children? That's, I, I thought that was a little bit.
0: I'll have to go confusing. back and watch that. I can't actually remember. I mean, I didn't remember noticing that slip if it was one, but what about when he, so he actually does kind of manipulate this Rather, even though she's not naive in some ways, she's still very naive in other ways. Mm, yeah, she wants the attention. Emotionally and... naive. Yeah. So, what do you make about all that? The meeting with the preacher, and he, I, I, I you know, he I... buys her some movie magazines and
1: and ice cream and whatnot. Yeah. Again, I couldn't really get past my initial discomfort because I thought we've we've spent the last twenty minutes. Or so being shown that he's a very methodical man when he can when he wants to be Um, but when we get there we're back to the original preacher who seduces Willa it's charm then as soon as he gets what he wants it's ice cold and he literally stands up and leaves so um, we're back to the preacher from the first half of the movie which I like because he's not being buffoonish at the moment so he becomes scary again so what do you think about it because i that was one of the parts i was still a bit unsure about the whole ruby part was i was a bit unsure about to be honest
0: well i mean as i said before i read the book they go into much more detail there in the book but in focusing on the movie yeah i mean it, it kind of rushes towards the end i mean things kind of Fall into place and she gives up the fact that John and Pearl are staying with Rachel Cooper.
1: To be fair to Pearl, she doesn't know anything about the feature. At that point, the only people who know for certain that Willa is dead are Uncle Bertie and the feature.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I
1: mean, the children, the children absolutely assume it, but Ruby will have absolutely no
0: idea about any of that. No, Ruby would know nothing about that.
1: So her giving up the children really isn't something...
0: No, I mean, it's quite believable. I mean, it's...
1: it's, Which confuses me, because when he leaves, Ruby looks almost into the camera and says, I did a bad thing, or something like that. But why does she think she's done a bad thing? She can't know.
0: Well, maybe it's it's a sense. I don't know. I mean, Possibly. And then things kind of after that point, they kind of we're we're pretty near the end now. We have the initial scene where the preacher shows up at Rachel Cooper's house, and as you said, Pearl is pretty happy to see him despite the that what happened that, in the cellar, yeah, and
1: that annoyed that annoyed me.
0: I've got something to say about that later. I'll, I'll tell you okay. what. Rachel Cooper comes out with her shotgun. She knows. Oh, not, not at that point. Okay, that's not what happens first.
1: No. Um. He comes and says, "Oh, here, are my children." Just tries to give the, then tries to go into the good and uh, love and hate bit. He's pretty quickly shot down. Uh, sees through him quite quickly.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Like she's and reading. He comes,
1: so Jeez. she comes out with a shotgun when the creature is chasing John, who's now got the doll.
0: Yeah, he runs under the
1: porch. He gets his knife out,
0: and she's leaning over with the shotgun. Yeah, no, yeah, all that happened for sure, and she's reading John's emotions, and he takes him aside, and he, I mean, she knows that he's a nasty piece of work, and...
1: There's one thing I... One line I didn't like, and that's when um, she pulled, she's pulled a shotgun, and Harry Powell's retreat. But he shouts at her, I'll come back tonight. So this is not the last you've seen of Harry Powell. I'll come back after dark or nightfall, or something like that. Yeah, they kind of telegraph it pretty. Yeah, enough. I, because I don't like the after nightfall, just that part, I'll come back. Because in the, over the next few scenes, we see Miss Cooper stay up. And of course, you're going to stay up because he's just told you, I'm coming here tonight. But if he, if he didn't say, I'm coming here tonight, and then the film continued as it was with her staying up still, it would presented her as being more. Yeah, absolutely. Because it gives the message. It doesn't. She's not given a time frame. Therefore the audience sees that just being no matter when or where she will be protected. She
0: she Yeah, it's telegraphed pretty brazenly. He's been chased off the first time. So Rachel Cooper stays up, as you said, in her rocking chair with the shotgun nearby, or maybe it's even in her lap at one point yeah. and she hears some sounds outside and then she goes and gets all the children and gathers them around her and she again starts telling the stories i think some bible stories i mean you can take it from there what happens then
1: well yeah so um yeah she gives again and then his theme tune that he himself sings comes on leaning on love's ever- everlasting arms no i've not heard that hymn before this song so i I wasn't sure whether it was unique to the movie, or it was, um, you know, in the lexicon of American uh, Americano, which I which I think it is. It
0: is. That's a great question. I would be willing to bet it absolutely is. I would think. Well, yeah,
1: it, it definitely is. So he he starts singing that again, to which we have sort of a dueling banjos, where she starts singing against him. Uh, the same song with slightly altered lyrics. I'm not sure which ones are the original, so I can't really comment on that, but, uh, she's basically standing up to him, saying, I am the equal of you, that you don't scare me. Uh, then he, uh, pops into the house, gets in. And
0: yeah, uh, pops up, up. <laughs> a jump scare there, like, that
1: was- Yeah. Oh, we completely missed. I don't know. I don't know how we missed it, but we missed the first jump scare a real one. It was at the, um, his introduction to the children, where his silhouette is flashed on the.
0: Oh right! Yeah, we didn't even talk about uh, that. That was quite a good well. scene. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I mean the the way this film—we'll talk about it in a minute—just the lighting and the use of light and shadow is quite so, memorable. Again. Popping up, but she just shoots him. <laughs> she shoots him right in the shoulder. I mean, and that talked talk about
1: coming to a gunfight yeah. with a knife.
0: And that banshee cry, he shrieks, and he turns and runs out, and he runs into the barn, and she gets on the blower, the old-fashioned phone, the crank phone. Yeah, and it says, and, I've got something in my barn. And then... It kind of comes full circle with the police come boiling in in about two or three cars and something we didn't even talk about. And maybe it's probably more in the book than the film, but this image of John's father getting taken away that he had haunted him, the men in blue. Yeah,
1: I didn't, I, that really comes to me because, uh, Harry has not had any redeeming features or qualities at all. And um, when he shoots him, like you say, he howls and hobbles off. That's the death of Harry Powell, feature scary character. Because after that, we see him standing quite meekly outside
0: the barn when the police are there. Mm -hmm. He's arrested. Seeing his father get taken away, I I don't think John at that point has a sudden surge of feelings for Harry Powell. It's just a memory from, I think, seeing his, seeing his father get taken away. Again, maybe I'm conflating it a bit with the book because that's quite a big thing throughout the book where he I mean, he's quite often the point of view character, and he remembers that over and over. The men in blue, the men in blue. I don't think there's uh, personally. He, I don't feel he's got a sudden surge of feeling for the Harry Powell. No, it's just a memory. It is, of, it's
1: more about not wanting the
0: money. It comes across that like, take the money, back, take the money. Back. Right? Yeah, the, he's he sees the 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 truth about how much. I mean, it's not just the money, but how much trouble this money has caused. So then, and then in the resolution, we have a quite a even after that point in the film, there's still quite a few interesting little bits before it wraps up.
1: Yeah, we well, uh, the most poignant one I think is <laughs> Ice Spoon leading a lynch mob.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> Like I mean, they're literally carrying torches and pitchforks. I think
1: she's got a fucking axe. She, oh, she, she has, has an, an axe? axe. Okay.
0: Okay. Uh, but
1: again, it's 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 a good representation of the townspeople as followers. So at the beginning, it's following to be good, following the blah blah blah, but doing it blindly. And then at the end, it's again following but blind range this time.
0: I think, isn't the last time we see the preacher, he's being bundled into a car, yeah, a police car, maybe coming out of a clinic or a hospital or somewhere. And after that, I don't think we see him again. He's just no. a specter that's haunting, still haunting many of these people. But we don't well, see I, him again. I don't.
1: After that I didn't see him as a spectre.
0: They're just out for revenge. Uh, you don't see something like his spirit is it had so much his evil spirit is still No, kind I
1: like of- I because I think when he when he got shot and he whimpers away. Like I said, that's the death of the evil okay. character. After that we've just got like the shell of a man. Sure. I don't particularly like kill him. Have him die in the story. I'm, I'm I'm sure they didn't want Miss Cooper to kill him. Um, have the have the switchblade kill him somehow?
0: So yeah, it is a bit of a clunky ending in in some regards. There's no real resolution to it. Oh, no. but one thing Thank I was thinking know. about as you were saying that is how he's just kind of like you said he's just kind of rendered ineffectual, like you quite often see even nowadays. People don't want to mention the person, they just want him gone. It, it was quite an
1: anticlimactic
0: ending for that character, I thought.
1: I mean, the only, the only, apart from the lynch mob, the only other thing mentioning him at the end is when the hangman comes out and he's, there's a conversation where oh, I've got new ones for you and he says, well, I'm going to enjoy this one. And that's, and that's it. Seen his response,
0: his right? Response to it, seen his so response. then, after that, we it, it kind of wraps up. Finally, it's kind of a maudlin ending with Rachel uh, Cooper, you know, and her how her speech about how children abide, and I mean, it's a big theme in the movie about the innocence of children. Yeah, and then she gives him the timepiece to John. That he, what do you make of that whole timepiece? He saw it first in the, he really wanted a watch. In the pawn shop, yeah. Right. There's got to be something there, right? What do you make of all that? And then he finally, she gives it to him. Pocket I
1: really it don't know. <laughs> I
0: mean, There's like, got to be something how, there with time. How can,
1: how can she even know that he wants a pocket watch?
0: Well, yeah, but come on, you can. Yeah, we can go Sorry, along I'm, like, and assume. I'm, yeah, I'm digging into the plot now, Yeah. Right. Yeah. We okay. We can. We can assume someone he he told her that. But so yeah. that's basically that wraps up then the discussion of the that's the story that is the night yeah. of the hunter. I don't
1: particularly like the end. Like you say, it's very than but it is a fairy tale ending.
0: It is a fairy tale ending. Let's remember the Times, nineteen fifty five Hollywood yeah, yeah. movie. it's, obviously, I mean.
1: it, it's obviously here.
0: So is there anything else that that stood out in the film that you wanted to talk about? You know, like like you said, I mean sex is a huge repressed, destructive form. That's a huge theme throughout. Obviously in the character of Harry Powell.
1: Yeah, Willa.
0: Willa then I see in. Yeah, I see. She's got, yeah, I, I was surprised. I thought you might mention some of those kind of risque lines she, she had like about lying back and thinking of her canning. I don't know what canning is though. Canning like, it, yeah. like uh, you know, preserves making, uh, oh, okay. yeah, okay. yeah.
1: because that? Yeah, lie back and think of England. Yeah, of yeah, right, stuff. right. So, so, so she's basically there saying that Sex is a duty, something to be endured. Yeah, but, they, but at then the same she's, time, got, she's quite obviously lusting
0: over the, Yeah, absolutely. The like she's, kind of, she's kind of dissing her husband and suggesting he doesn't quite and, quite live up to the, you know, he doesn't. Yeah, and quite, he, gives,
1: he gives like a semi comedic eye roll almost. Yeah, right, right. And, and he's very, like, he plays
0: the right. suppressed, downbeaten husband. And probably maybe Rachel Cooper is the only one. Maybe who kind of has a healthy view or realistic view of intimacy. I mean, she kind of comforts the young girl, Ruby. Yeah,
1: saying I understand your feelings, but there's better ways to go about it. To go back to the beginning, like I said, uh, Willa and her husband, who would have would have appeared to have had quite a healthy sexual relationship. Absolutely, they did. Because um, Willa wants to have sex. And her husband obviously obliged. And that's why he was sort of looked down upon by Ice. And then bringing, bringing those feelings, expecting her new relationship to be much like the last. She was very quickly and brutally
0: disappointed. So let's keep going. We've talked a lot about the characters throughout. But let's just kind of zero in on some of the main characters, and if you have anything more, I think I'm sure you have more to say about Harry Powell, the preacher. So he's yeah, a fundamental I, right. He's a fundamentalist preacher, deep seated hatred yeah, of women.
1: Yeah, 80. I mean, is he is I, is
0: he really a preacher? Who I, knows? On the one
1: hand, I like this character, not not the character, but I like how he's portrayed because. A lot of times you get too much backstory for a character, too much understanding, and they become less scary. Good point. Not knowing anything about him, big tick, makes him scary. However, this might just be me digging too deep, but I was confused by him because is, is he a con man or is he a psychopath? Because his motivation is money. He doesn't go after the burlesque bills. Or whatnot, he said we can't kill the world. So his motivation seems to be money, and
0: he's yeah, um, but he's he a I mean, he well. hates women like he loathes. Yes. He's a misogynist. He definitely, definitely. I mean, he ties the money into the into the murders, but I, I think he's driven by this. You know, like a it's almost like a cliched. You know, this person who's driven by rage of. What it obviously is is his own lustful feelings that he can't control. But yeah, I mean there, there are and there that's, were. That's the other side. That's the other side of him. Is he is he a schizophrenic
1: psychopath? He's talking. to God, is that him being whimsical by himself, or does he feel like he has a direct line, which would give like that would make him schizophrenic, which would take away his ability. Most likely to be reasonable and logical enough to dupe all these people into believing that he's a preacher.
0: Like you, I haven't read deeply about the the actual over the very limited
1: understanding of motivation of money mm-hmm. makes him scarier because it's right. about him.
0: So, yeah, good question you raised about. Is he a sociopath? Is he a psychopath? Is he a true believer? Yeah, yeah. When you have con artists, so most con artists probably don't believe the lines they're spinning. They know they're duping people, but then you do have the occasional one who truly believes. So, do you think he's a true believer? Or does he know full well what he's doing all along, and it's just yeah? That's where I'm stuck. I think because it's meant he's got, to he's be got, that way, and I think that's good So he's he's committed
1: to the um, <laughs> to the to the art if he is. But um, in
0: in a way, I think it's good that it is left that way ambiguous. I mean, you don't 100 percent know, like you said, his background. You know what drives him, but but then
1: then if he was. The psychopathic murderer, he wouldn't so he wouldn't be so limp. Like if he's a psychopath, I want him to die, fighting, go down.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: Like serial killers have the urge to kill. That's what they want. If they're psychopathic serial killers, right. okay. It, it's not something. It's not like a hobby that you can give or take of that urge. Yeah, so what you what Run I mean. away so meekly towards the end. I found. Yeah. Quite, uh, like I said, an anticlimax for his character. I love the whole performance. His performance was great. Great voice. Menacing, uh, the looks that he gives.
0: Yeah, I think he, I think he does play up that kind of buffoonish quality somewhat. Maybe not in a brazen act all the time, I, but I think... I that... did
1: actually, sorry, I did read, uh, Lawton wanted him to inject
0: a bit of that quality into it because he didn't mm-hmm. want an out and out scary and so let's move on to a discussion of some of the other characters I mean what about Willa Harper she's kind of interesting but she kind of buckles pretty fast under his what do you think of the character yeah. of Willa Harper
1: broken I think she's portrayed well as broken because uh, we meet her she's obviously in mourning, she's reluctant to start a new relationship mm-hmm. and then she's seduced, pushed along by Icy into something that she wasn't ready for or not wanting and then she was reduced, uh, seduced, um, broken and subjected to, to, to his will, so much so that uh, she accepted
0: death really without yeah, Question. just like uh, just like a cult member, she she just lay back and she had that kind of angelic glow about her, yeah. and probably thought she deserved it. Who knows? And what yeah. about the character of Rachel Cooper? I mean, quite an admirable character, really. Yeah, um, I would like I would like a flaw. Slow- it's Not insinuated that
1: she so. doesn't have. It's, yeah, it's insinuated that she doesn't have good relationships well, with the children that have been in through her care.
0: Right. Well, when contrasted against Powell, I mean, that's the whole fairy tale thing, right? There's, yeah. There is no nuance. Powell is pure evil. She's pure good. There is. But that's you're, boring. You're right. I'm that you're right. No, boring. you're absolutely right. She's uh, a good
1: character, she portrays, it's, Yeah,
0: forms. it would have been, it would have been more interesting, sure, if there'd been something a bit more there. Yeah, and, the character's nice, but. Yeah, um, admirable, nice, but a bit, you know, a bit kind of unrealistic, a bit bland. But again, maybe it fits in the whole fairy tale idea. That, and that end monologue. I mean, the characters of John and Pearl, like you said, they're just kind of pawns, really. I mean, they represent innocence, childhood innocence. They... Well, Pearl especially. Cause she's... Naive. An extreme level. And, so let's keep moving along here then. I mean, unless, do you have anything else you want to say about Powell or any of the characters?
1: I think I have something, but it's slipping my mind.
0: So, let's go on to and talk maybe a bit about the performances. What do you think about Robert Mitchum's performance as Harry Powell? Very good.
1: I liked it a lot. Charming elements. Uh, When, For example, when he's singing at the picnic, everyone's gravitating towards him. Good, strong voice. He's handsome. He's tall. Uh, He's the tallest person in the whole film. I'm not sure if you noticed that. No one's taller than him. Um, So that gives him an air of menace in and of itself. He's singing, like I say, at the picnic. Very charming, but when he's singing outside of houses, very intimidating and creepy. When he's singing, yeah,
0: he is very creepy. Good luck. When he, when all pretense is thrown aside and he snaps and, but leading up to that is obviously a bit more subtle, but you, you have no doubt any I mean, obviously, from the first we're introduced to him, he tells us he's got six or 12 corpses to his name. He doesn't really tell us. He doesn't know oh, and He doesn't six, care. He's, six or
1: 12 will, widows, so we don't know whether or not it has been more who aren't widows.
0: I and, and in the film, he's got two kills, I guess. He's got Willa and then the horse owner, which we don't really see anything about that. We just hear about it. and We yeah. assume as audience members that he's murdered. The owner of the horse.
1: I uh, uh yeah, go back to the bit very beginning. Uh the intense look sort of hatred on his face when he's at the Burkes show. Yeah. Really good.
0: That was that, that was uh, quite a good scene with the men kind of the downbeat kind of serious, kind of seedy men all singing. Yeah, well
1: everyone everyone was quite leery.
0: Yeah, very leery. And then he had he had and... a very intense but getting back to Mitchum's performance, I guess on set. I mean, this isn't his performance, but might be somewhat related. I guess he was a bit of a tyrant on the set. Came to a bit of an
1: arsehole, yeah,
0: yeah. Came drunk and high and drugs. Apparently, at one point, he urinated into the front seat of a car that was on set. Yeah, I think I read yeah, that. yeah. And well, what about? Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
1: I'll oh, say I um, in my in my. Um, at the beginning, I have been up by saying the film opens on preacher, and we are left in no uncertain terms that he is a diabolical shit. Absolutely, diabolical shit, because that's what Lawton, when describing the character he was auditioning with Mitchum, he said he described the character as a diabolical shit.
0: Okay, like exactly. And,
1: and Mitchum says, "Present, present, present." So that that was a big tick in
0: his box. So one of the reasons he got the job. And let's go on. What about the Shelley Winters? What about her performance as Willa Harper? Good, but
1: she wasn't really given a lot to work with, Ready. Well,
0: and, she did. She did well. Yeah. And then we had Lillian Gish as Rachel Cooper. She pretty much played it the way you know. What else yeah. could she do? She yeah. Was the,
1: yeah, I liked her performance. I, it's not, well again, I just don't
0: like real. And then we have, uh, Billy Chapin, who played John Harper and Sally Jane Bruce. Not a lot really you can say about them. I mean, they did a, no. you know, competent job. Yeah, um, it was pretty
1: rushed at the beginning, but yeah.
0: And, I mean, anyone, any other, uh, any other performances you want to comment on?
1: Um, I see. Right. I see some. I don't know who played her, but that actress did a really good job of making her as abrasive and ob- obnoxious as possible.
0: I don't watch this film. Yeah, that yet. was. Uh, yeah, Ooh, I no... wish
1: she was my next door neighbor.
0: Yeah, it was an actress named Evelyn Varden. She did a really good job. Of yeah, yeah, she did. Whole, like, she did. Really, really did a good job. And anyone else? You any other uh performances you want to talk about? I think that's pretty much covered the. the no,
1: Yeah. The yeah. Characters, yeah.
0: Right. So, what about the direction, the directing by Charles Lawton? I mean, it's quite a visually arresting film. The light and shadows.
1: acting uh, was beautiful. Very moody. Very film noir. Um, The set is very simple. I'm not sure if you noticed, like all the all the lines are quite clean. There's no there's no clutter in any of the houses or interior spots.
0: That's true. That's which I, true.
1: I I read uh, a review, which put forth an argument, that made quite sense, and it it's almost as if it's being shot from a child's perspective, like well, um, from a child's memory. That's so interesting. They, uh, everything in the background is simple, really not there, whereas when the physical attacks uh, and and more exciting stuff happens. That's where the detail. That's where the detail is. So when when they're in the basement, there's lots more detail with
0: the jam jars, or oil. It was quite. I liked the score and the when they were on the river. I think I really loved the river sequence more than you. I mean, for me, that's just really haunting. And
1: I think, like I, I, just... said, I think that's something that I would appreciate more next time I watched it, and, and the time after that
0: yeah that really really stood out for me as one of the most memorable parts of the film okay so let let's keep going. Why do you think this film failed critically and financially at the time of its release? I had a kind of half baked theory, but what do you think uh,
1: well, one, because um it's it's so hard to understand it's not it's not your it's experimental movie. So the first people to go and see it, I imagine, they were much like me, thinking, "What is going on here?" So just the direction, the way it's shot, that probably one reason. Two, the fact that the protagonist—by uh, protagonist, I mean the person who drives the story—that's that's Harry Powell. Yeah. The, the murderous creature. And considering the religious sentimentality uh sentimentalities at that time, in you know, that would not have been a popular choice having your main character a man of God who murders people
0: that so I think that's absolutely what I was thinking too, and yet you know you have other representations of Christianity. I mean the film opens with Rachel Cooper with quotes from the Bible, and Good wins out in the end right? But yeah. I, I do agree that yeah, that might have had some kind of influence at the time. So yeah, I, th- I think that's, I mean, obviously
1: it's the whole good versus evil. Mischief is a good Christian, uh sensible, stoic, practical, whereas how is the bad Christian? jealousy, being overbearing. Like I say, given the sentimentalities at the time. People just human nature is look at the bad things and blow them out of proportion. So that might have had an element to it.
0: Yeah, the two kids in the film they're they're just let down by absolutely everybody up until they encounter Rachel Cooper, but everybody lets them down. Their father, their mother, obviously Powell, even this this friend, this old man.
1: Uncle Bertie, yeah. Yeah, Uncle Bertie at his at his moment. I'm not sure about the book, but it looked like Uncle Bertie was only in there to demonstrate that point.
0: Could be, could be. Because um, I don't
1: see any other reason for him to be in that film, other than to demonstrate that adult to useless.
0: Yeah, he just let them he, he down had, at their he, moment of need. He told Little John, "If you ever need me, come and find me." And then they finally did, and he's he's in a fetal position on the ground, yeah. drunk. And, and scared theater. out of his wits.
1: That's, that's the only point, that's the only point of him in the whole movie. But and it confused me at the beginning. And then right. when you comes to that realization, you think, ah, yeah, that's what he said.
0: Sorry, another thing I thought we might talk about briefly is just the way serial killers are depicted in this film. The way serial killers are depicted in film in general has changed a lot I think over the years and just as society kind of looks at serial killers. Do you have anything to say about that?
1: Um, just really what I said before, I mean like with your serial killer movies nowadays you're generally given more background and, as to motivation.
0: It's more glamorized they focus on the kills more. Yeah. Maybe. Depending on the film.
1: The murder is almost an afterthought in this movie. It's the menace that comes
0: through Yeah. More. It's the money, it's the menace. Um so yeah, in the late sixties and seventies, I think when you had Manson and all that, things really started to change.
1: Yeah, this was made uh nineteen fifty five. So this is way beyond this is way your Ted Bundy's Killers of the 70s and 80s which I think are a lot more influential on modern films now than more of the um, because of how they're presented in the media To uh, when this was made serial killers would be more folk-like because they they would be reported so heavily in the media
0: and of course, that was well before the the term was coined. They they were just yeah. nasty people. I thought it was interesting though that there are some serial killer themes that have always seemingly been there. For example, uh the fact someone some women are always seem to be enchanted by dangerous men.
1: Oh Duke yeah, the sexy guy. sexy killer. Yeah, that's uh
0: yeah. That's, I mean, the trope. I mean, yeah, and serial killers, uh, criminologists, people who study them, they're always linked. It's always about lust and sex. It's always, it's always really tied together.
1: Yeah. For a lot of the cases. Yeah.
0: Right. So let's keep going. Now we're moving on to a segment that I hope to make a regular part of this podcast. It's called trifles and trivialities. So in this segment, we discuss a handful of interesting facts about the week's featured film. And of course, this week, it's the Night of the Hunter. And Craig, you know, just feel free to jump in at any time. Maybe you have some of your own you want to add.
1: And if I've got anything, I'll, I'll certainly jump in.
0: Charles Lawton, the director of the movie, never directed another film after this one. In fact, it was the only film he ever directed. Apparently, he was crushed by the poor reviews and box office. But other accounts claim he liked directing in the theater more than films anyway. And, of course, he was actually more known for his acting than his directing and even won an Academy Award in 1933. So maybe a case of the tragic-sounding version gaining more traction, whether or not it was completely true, or maybe it is.
1: The, the writer of this movie, James Agee, when he was told to write a script for this, he came back with a 300-page script. Really? But um, Mitchum tells a story. Basically, Lawton rewrote. However, that's okay. true. Lawton told him... To shorten it, certainly, but even upon reading of the 300-page script, the movie is shot shot what James Agee wrote okay. in that original 300-page script.
0: All right, let's keep going. Number two. So I've read the book on which the movie is based. I don't think you have. It was written by Davis Grubb, of course, long since passed away. And it's a very good book. In fact, I've written recently a book review that appears on the website, crimenarrative.com. And I really recommend it to anyone who likes reading crime fiction. The movie is a very faithful adaptation of the book. I mean, they take dialogue verbatim, a lot of it, right from the book. Of course... Yeah, the scenes with the young woman Ruby in the final third of the film is, there's a lot more to that. I mean, there's a lot more to everything, of course, because of the form, but it's, it's a very good book. I really, really recommend it. I recommend it to you and to anybody who might be listening. Number three, the scene with the preacher riding a horse in the distance when the children are in the hayloft, I believe was actually apparently a dwarf riding the horse to create a forced perspective with the accompanying studio scenery. I guess. When
1: you look when you look at it, uh, the rider
0: does look huge compared to the horse. Yeah, most of this I guess most of this was shot in a studio. There were some location shots, but number four, the serial killer in the movie, Harry Powell, aka the AKA The Preacher was based on a real-life serial killer, Harry Powers. Yeah, it's a very similar name even. And yeah, he found victims through the Lonely Hearts ads in newspapers. And like the preacher, his victims were mainly widows. He operated from the late 1920s to the early 30s. And I believe it was even in the relatively same geographical area as, as the film is set. Then, number five, we were talking about Pearl, but regarding the actress, the young girl who who starred in the film, who played Pearl, her name, again, was Sally Jane Bruce. This was a quote that appeared attributed to Lawton. Apparently, he... The Lawton, Charles Lawton, who directed the film, later, after the film came out, he told Davis Grubb, the author of the book, that he found little Sally Jane, quote, a repulsive, little insensitive, pie-faced teacher's pet and, end quote, that was exactly why he cast her as Pearl. <laughs> he oh, really? could have been a bit friendly, or maybe he could have called her <laughs> yeah. a, a little goody two-shoes. uh, But, yeah, so.
1: I believe that's her only film credit.
0: It is. Yeah, it is. I think you're right. She's still alive and well. I think she's about 73. Uh-huh. But Billy Chapin, the little boy, I guess he, he passed away some years ago. I didn't know that. Yeah, apparently he had some as not is is not uncommon with child actors some alcohol. Issues.
1: Oh yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And then finally, the role of the preacher was originally offered to Gary Cooper, who turned it down. So, you have anything to add to that segment, Craig? Something related, but not quite
1: the same. Okay, so uh my segment, the segment I'm going to call MDNA, stands for Movie DNA, where we can talk about this movie's influence on the film industry or what films since have paid any homage to the movie. So I'm going to begin with the, the, the obvious one, the, the, the tattoos. This has been re- uh, reproduced in countless... Countless movies, most obviously in Spike Spike Lee movie, but my favourite one is um, Sideshow Bob, who has, because The Simpsons only have four fingers, he has love and hat tattooed on his hands. That's one of my favourites. Next, the Coen brothers have been very heavily influenced by this film. In Raising Arizona, have you seen that film, Ken?
0: I have, yeah. It's been quite a few years, but yeah, I, I definitely have seen that. It's like a road movie, isn't it? They lifted uh, this line. Sometimes it's a hard
1: world for little things. They inserted that, which is a very obvious um, quote. Later on in the movie The Big Lebowski, towards the end of the movie, at the very end of the movie, in fact, the dude says... The dude abides, which is
0: oh quite, right, yeah,
1: quite abide, an, right, yeah, quite an obvious. I mean, abide is quite an archaic term.
0: Absolutely, yeah,
1: that, I'm sure that is, yeah. So yeah. The, the dude saying the dude abides, quite quite an obvious, obvious reference there. And then um, in True Grit, they play leaning, leaning on love's everlasting arms throughout so that's right. yeah absolutely yeah by um the
0: brothers obviously it's a favourite film of theirs so how do you think the film stands up today would you would younger audiences of today like it would you recommend this film to others uh I love the movie I think it's great uh would I recommend it
1: not to my students
0: <laughs> yeah no
1: no, Unless, probably not. I don't think. Well, the younger generation. Obviously, I'm being very generalistic here, but maybe growing up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and films on Netflix, which is basically brain food and like just trash, I don't think they will understand the movie. I would. I would recommend it certain to friends who enjoy cinema as an art not as an escape but yeah I loved it.
0: Yeah I absolutely loved this film I would watch it again I will watch it again and I will recommend it to people so I think that pretty much does it Craig do you have anything else you want to say about this film anything else you want to add before we finish up?
1: No I think um, that's pretty much all I I wanted to (laughs)
0: And that's it for the first episode of the Crime Narrative Podcast. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to my guest, Craig Perkins. If you have any feedback, please send me an email at crimenarrativepodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Crime Narrative and check out the website crimenarrative.com. On our next episode, we're going to discuss an absolute classic from 1960, Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Crime Narrative Podcast.